let's pray and we'll get into Ecclesiastes 4. God, thank you and praise you for the day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for breath in our lungs and the opportunity to serve you yet again today, Lord. You're gracious and compassionate. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in love and your mercy is new every day. God, we thank you for holding us together. We thank you for um, making a way that we could come into the presence of a, a just and a holy God, and that is by the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that it's not just life under the sun, but that in you there is new life and life eternal. Father, as we do study your word, I pray that uh, we would glean what you would want, from, uh, want us to from it, and God, that you would teach us and equip your saints tonight. We love you, and we offer you this time in Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, the, the story of life under the sun, that is the book of Ecclesiastes, that's the phrase Solomon has chosen to use, and, and it's the idea that life, if it were only on this plane, if it were only in this uh, dimension, uh, the, that if life were just purely physical, then what would life be like? What would be the conclusions that we could draw? And Solomon lent himself to this, and really, more than it's more than it's an experiment, he has essentially defected from serving God. And most would say that's because of the seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines, most of whom were from different religions, that over the course of his life pulled him away from God. It's interesting in the book of um, Deuteronomy where they talk, the people were looking for a king and, and, and God gives them the laws that would be um, set up for a king, Solomon essentially breaks every one of them. They weren't to multiply wives, they weren't to multiply horses and multiply gold or something along those lines. And Solomon just breaks all of them. And, and what he gets is the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of his life to say that he's fallen away. As we read last week at the end of chapter 3, chapter 3 is the big, you know, birds chapter. <laughs> turn, 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 right? But at the end of that chapter, life under the sun, life without God, comes to a logical conclusion, and that is that we are no different than the animals. It's interesting, when you remove God from the equation, that's the conclusion that you come to. And certainly, when you remove God from the equation today, we can see that that's the conclusion the world has come to that we are no different than the animals. But, and I think this is really the hope of the whole book, back there in chapter 3, verse 11, Solomon says, God has placed eternity in our hearts. He has impressed upon us that there has to be, there must be something more. And it is in the, the quest to find out what that something more is that we, we are able to find what God has done on our behalf. So really, the end of chapter 3 is a good place to end the book of Ecclesiastes. Like It would make sense just to say life without God doesn't make sense. But that there's still nine chapters yet. There's 12 chapters in the book of Ecclesiastes. Why nine more chapters? Well, I think it's so that you and I, some 3,000 years later, roughly, can read this book and see that there was one man, he was the wisest man that ever lived, who has done it all, has tried it all. He has left no stone unturned. 
He's, he's, he's given himself to every possibility of what life would be like without God under the sun. And that's what the rest of the book is. is the, look, I even tried this. I even tried this. We, I examined this. I looked at these. And, and, and if chapters 1, 2, and 3 were kind of the, the totality of it, now chapters 4 through 12 are going to kind of break down exactly all that he has done. Like I said, Solomon leaves no stone unturned, and that's for our benefit. And we want to read this book, hopefully to learn from Solomon's experience so that we don't waste our life chasing after the things that he's already chased after and said it's not worth it. Rather, we can invest in what's eternal. So Ecclesiastes 4, verse 1, it says, Then I returned and I considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their, their oppressors, there is power, but they have no comforter. As we look at life outside of God's hand, as we look at life under the sun, as Solomon is calling it, what we see stinks. What we see is not good. What Solomon sees is oppression. And I think if we are honest about the way life is today, as you watch the news, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, oppression is still around. It's still an issue. What is oppression? I like the way Pastor Dave defined it. Oppression is man's inhumanity to man. Man's inhumanity to man. It's the way we treat one another in an inhumane way. That's oppression, and it's brought on by sin, that we live in a fallen world. Man is in, doesn't act humanely to other men. The actual definition, dictionary.com, like I said, it's replaced Webster's, but the, uh, the actual definition of oppression is the exercise of authority or power in a burdensome, cruel, or unjust manner. It's when you use the power that you have been given in one way or another to benefit at the cost of somebody else. Uh, the authority or power in a burdensome, cruel, or unjust manner. In oppression, victims are created. The, the, the result of oppression is victims. A, a victim is somebody who um, is somebody that has no power over their own circumstance. And that's what oppression does, is it, it limits our response. It limits our ability to, they have, we have, would have, a victim would have no power over their situation or their circumstance. Those that oppress others are just using their power for their own benefit with no concern for their victim. And it's sad to see that we see it all the time. Sorry to burst your bubble. <laughs> Maybe I'm not bursting any bubbles here. Maybe we're kind of keen to this reality. But life is not a playground. Right? Life is not a playground. What is it? It's a battleground. And that's the truth of the matter. 
we don't, um, how do I know that life is not, uh, sorry, life isn't a playground, it's a battleground. How do we know? What would be the proof? You, you grew up playing on playgrounds. Did you ever need a distraction from the playground? Did you ever need something to step outside and say, oh, you know what, this is just too much. I, I need to take a break from the playground. No. Life is not a playground. How do I know? Because you and I need distractions in order to cope with life. For years, um, back in the day, I had a very good friend that I walked alongside. This was before I was married. His name was Todd. And Todd owned a, a, a small cleaning business. Um, and he would work in the evenings and uh, throughout the night and what have you. And he had a couple employees, but he was always dealing with employee issues, always had trouble finding help. And then when he found help, the help would be no good or he, they would find a better job. And just was always a struggle to try to find people. And it used to bother him so much. And I understand that it was a, it was a troubling thing. But he, in order to cope with the struggles that he had at work and what have you, he would, he, he would find a release, and what his release was, was movies. And he would go to the movies like three or four times a week, and it didn't matter what was on the screen. It was a break from reality. It was two hours where he didn't have to think about, who am I going to find for work tonight? And, 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 and that's the proof that I have that life is a battleground. There are different outlets, there are different breaks to reality. Some find it in alcohol, some find it in sports, some find it in whatever it is, but that we need a break from the reality is a proof that this is, in, in fact, a battleground, and we have to deal with oppression. In heaven, we're not going to need a break from reality, right? There's the playground. There's the, the, the full-on joy, if it, as it were. But here on earth, sometimes we do in order just to cope. Why? Because oppression is live and well. In this day and age, the day you and I live in, 2015, there are more slaves today than there ever have been in history. That's our society. That's the society you and I live in. We thought we abolished slavery 100 years ago. No, it's worse now than it ever has been. Various trades, be it labor or the sex trade or what have you, human trafficking is, is rampant. I live up near Polaris Mall, and um, one of my good friends went to a, a talk um, about um, Polaris Mall, and they said it's actually one of the highest trafficked areas in all of Columbus, that there are girls taken from, it, from Polaris Mall on a regular basis. So it's not just somewhere on the other side of the world. It's our neighborhoods. And, you know, they say that um, they actually, actually one of the worst days for human trafficking is Super Bowl Sunday. That, you know, every, everybody wants to get a hotel room and a prostitute. That's human trafficking. Slavery is, is alive and well. Oppression uh, of the victims is alive and well. And what Solomon saw in his day, if we're honest and we don't try to mask it, we see in our day as well. And so therefore, he says in verse 2, therefore I praise the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. 
What a conclusion that you, he would come to. The wisest man, and if we're honest, we would come to it as well. Because of oppression, because of how serious it is, outside of the touch of God, you're just better off dead. You're, just, you're better off not living. And then he says even better than that, look at verse 3. Yet better than both, both the living and the dead, is he who never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Better is the person that's never even been born because they aren't a victim. Solomon's conclusion, it'd be better if I'd never been born. Wow, what a statement. But everybody outside of the touch of Christ, everybody outside of the realm of Christ, eventually comes to that conclusion in their heart as well. They take it to the fullest. Job came to the same conclusion. It's interesting to look at. In fact, let's look at it. We're, we're going to take a quick turn, turn back to the book of Job. It would be right before Psalms there. So just back a few books. Job chapter 3. He comes to the same conclusion that Solomon came to. It would be better off if I wasn't born. After he had, um, the Lord had allowed him to be, uh, Satan to take everything from him, his family, all, his, all that he had. It says in Job chapter 3, verse 1, After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said, A male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months Oh, that may that night be barren. May no joyful shout come into it. May those curse it who curse the day. Those who are already who are ready to arouse Leviathan. May the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light but have none, and not see the dawning of the day. Because not shut up in the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide in the sorrow of my eyes. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For now, I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest with the kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. Listen to this verse. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. Job recognizes the same thing that Solomon recognized, that life under the sun, it's better if you're not even born. Those never born never have to experience the oppression of this world, man's inhumanity to man. And I know that perhaps you're thinking, well, what about all the, the babies that were aborted? And certainly 
I would agree with that, but I, w- I believe life begins at conception. Again, this is the conclusion of life under the sun. Happy, cheerful stuff, huh? <laughs> but if we can get somebody that's outside of the family of Christ to think like this, to, and it's not that you have to warp or anything, but if they're just honest with themselves, these are the conclusions that they would come to. And it is in that heartbroken, heart-wrenching time that the overwhelming sense of a need of being saved comes forward. That they need to reach outside of themselves. There's no way you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, as it were. That you're in need of a rescuer. So looking again at life under the sun, he says in verse 4, again, I saw that for all toil and every skillful work, a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Have you experienced this in your life? I'm working hard. I'm doing a good job. Hey, I'm I'm doing a great job at work. The bosses love me. What happens when the bosses love you? Your coworkers hate you. Right? Oh, he's a suck-up. Oh, he's a, a brown noser. He's a, you know, a, a, misery loves company, you know? And, it, oh, oh, that, you know, your neighbor, or your neighbors look at you and, oh, look at how good he's doing. That's horrible. <laughs> Why? Because misery loves company. That's what that verse is saying. Or all the toil and all every skillful work, man is envied by his neighbor. And I saw that too as vanity, and I love that phrase, grasping for the wind. We talked about that, an impossibility. I've got the air, you know? I like the next couple verses. The fool folds his hand and consumes his own flesh. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. A couple, one verse Proverbs, if you would, but they kind of, it talks about life. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own. So the fool, first of all, he looks at your toil, he looks at the hard work that you're doing and the success that you're having. He gets upset with you about how well life is treating you or, or things are going well because misery loves company. And then he sits on his couch with a bag of potato chips watching Biggest Loser. You know, I, I, I'm not going to do anything. I saw a post on Facebook today. It was of a girl running, and, she's, and, he, and it said something like, remember that you're lapping everybody that's still sitting on the couch. No matter how slow you're running, you're still doing far better than anybody that's still sitting on the couch. And that's the idea here. The fool folds his hand and consumes his own flesh. It's, it's to his own detriment that he sits back and says, I'm not going to do anything about the way that I, my life is. But then take it to the other extreme in verse 6, and he says, better is a handful with quietness than both hands full, together with toiling, toil and grasping for the wind. Be content with the simple life. Be content with living simply. Let's have no attachment to this world. We don't need to build up a kingdom in this world other than building his kingdom. Let's hold on to this world lightly. Let's be ready to go, should our number be called, should the Lord return. 
the story, and I can't remember the captain's name, took an exploration to the South Pole, I believe it was, and as they um, got into exploring the South Pole, they eventually got ice locked. Uh, their, their ship got surrounded by ice, and they were unable to, to get anywhere. And so each night they would set up their camp on the ice uh, in preparation you know, to, to, to live and what have you. But every morning the captain would have the crew pack everything back up, put it back on the ship. And eventually, after weeks of this, the crew got tired of it. Like, why, after day after day, do we have to set up camp again? Why can't we just leave it out? And the captain said, because we will always be ready for our rescue. And that's the way we're supposed to live our life, is that we would take each day and, and recognize that we hold these days lightly, and we hold this world lightly with no attachment to it. So let's strive just to live simply rather than building up a kingdom here that's the best it is is the sandcastle kingdom that's going to be washed away when the tide comes in. Verse 7, Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother. Yet there is no end to all his labors nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and grave misfortune for the one who's living life by themselves and yet they continue to toil and work to the, their, their fingers to the bone just to build up their own kingdom. It's of little value. You know, God is less interested in what we have and more interested in who we are. God built us and created us for the purpose of relationship. It's not so much about where we live or what we have. I think you guys probably recognize that, but that's the conclusion here, that God created us for relationship. We all need someone. It doesn't necessarily mean a spouse. As not all are called to be married, but we all are to be in relationship. God the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor like yourself. We're to love in, in two directions. We love and praise and worship our God vertically, and we love horizontally our neighbor. I remember reading an article a couple of years back. <clears throat> it was, uh, I forget where it was, but it was interviewing um, women who had given their lives to their career. They opted to put off having children uh, and, and investing in families and devoted all of their working years to their career. And it was interviewing women who had gone beyond the years of childbearing. And they were asking them, was it the right choice? And of the eight or nine different women, these were CEOs and COOs and CFOs of companies, of the eight or nine women, I remember one of them at the time was... Um, uh, she was the president of Ohio State. I can't remember her name now, but that she was one of the ladies that was interviewed. And she had given her entire life to the pursuit of her career. And after her family, childbearing years, they asked, was that the right choice? And all eight or nine said, no. No. I made a poor choice in pursuing my career over building my family. Why? Because we're created for relationships. We're created for 
Think of that, that's why God created us, is to be in relationship with Him, but also to be in relationship with one another. We all need someone. Now the rest of the, uh, the next section of, that, of our chapter, um, Dave sang it in his song, it's often used for marriage. So you've probably heard this before, verses 9 to 12. It says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. And then an interesting statement, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So Solomon's looking at life and the fact that we are built for relationship, and as he looks at that, he says, you know what? Two are better than one. To be in relationship is better than being alone. Why? Because they have reward for their labor. They can celebrate the, the work that they've done. They can enjoy it with one another. If they fall, one will lift up his companion. As we walk this world in relationship with one another, you can help one another up. We, after our fellowship meal on Sunday, um, we had somebody fall out on the front uh, sidewalk. Older lady um, went to get into her car and lost her balance. Her feet got tangled up and ended up falling over, um, landing on her face, sadly. Yeah, and, uh, and so I was in here still cleaning up, and um, Cindy came in and said, you know, Judy fell, and um, so we came out, and she's, I don't know how old she is, uh, she's elderly, um, she was trying to get up, and uh, had busted her lip wide open and all kinds of stuff, and but she just didn't have the strength to get up. And, uh, and so uh, Michelle and I were able to, to help her up. But think of, had she been here alone? Think of that situation. You know, she would have had to, who knows how long she would have laid there until somebody came along to help her because she wasn't able. And that's the idea. Woe to him who, alone, who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. And, and that's true of physical falls <laughs> But it's true of our spiritual falls, it's true of our social falls, it's true of our emotional falls, that it's better in life when we have life to bounce off of. If there's, there's a relationship that you can, somebody can come alongside you, and that's what we're created for, is to, to do life with one another, to live life pointing people toward God. It's a blessing that we would have relationships. It's a, a challenge at times too. Certainly relationships are. But the key to overcoming oppression is unity. The key to, to defeating that oppression that he talked about in the first half of the chapter is what we see in these verses. It's in, it's in the relationship. It's in the unity. There is a risk involved when, as soon as we reach out to one another. We're taking a risk to try to become friends with somebody. They, they might want to oppress me. It is a risk in opening up your life to somebody else. But love is always a, a risk. And he loved us. We should love one another. That's the result. 
Um, that last verse, though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. I love that picture, and it is a great picture. And we use it in marriage to say, hey, your marriage is not just the two of you. It's not just husband and wife. It's not just um, the, the, the couple, in the, especially in a Christian marriage. It should be a three-stranded cord. It should be you and your spouse and God. And that cord woven together, when God is in the midst of your marriage, makes the strongest marriage possible. But just like a three-stranded cord makes the strongest of ropes, a three-stranded marriage, you, your spouse, and God, makes the strongest of marriages. I remember watching on Mythbusters. <laughs> um, they did a test. There was a myth that um, some prisoners had escaped from prison by braiding together toilet paper into a rope and using the toilet paper to get out of the window and down the wall. And so they were like, that sounds ridiculous. How is toilet paper going to hold a 180-pound man? But they actually started rolling it. You know, they took three different rolls and started rolling each one into a rope, as it were. And then they took those three and they started <laughs> twisting them together and, t- and entwining them together. And they tested it, three, ro- three of those well, three things of toilet paper was not strong enough to hold a 180-pound man, but 12 were. So they took three, four sets of three, and they braided all those things together. And it, but this, the idea, the point being that strength comes when things are woven together. Strength comes in our marriage. Strength comes in our relationship when we invite God into the midst of it. I remember the counselor that I had, Michelle and I had, in our pre-counseling, as we were talking about getting married, he said, you know, it's kind of like a triangle. Uh, you're, at, you're at one corner of the triangle. Your spouse is at the other corner of the triangle. At the top of the triangle is God. And as you walk the Christian life, what you, what you want to do is both of you are walking up those angles that are going to God so that as you grow, you are growing closer together and closer to God. That's, that's the idea of this three-stranded cord, that we would find strength in inviting God in the midst of it. You with me? All right. Finishing up this chapter. This is a very interesting section, (laughs) for lack of a better term. Have you ever met somebody that's so smart that you just can't follow them? Like, they, they, they... there's a point where you can lose common sense based on how smart you are. My grandfather, Methodist minister, was the, the whip. Like, he just incredibly intelligent. Could speak on almost any subject, especially when it came to theology. Was, was a, 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 a giant in the church that he was in, and just an incredibly smart man. But to cook dinner, he'd put the green beans on before he started the roast. You know, it just, no common sense whatsoever. You know, burned water, you know, that kind of thing. I kind of get that feeling here at the last section of chapter 4. Solomon's almost too smart for his own britches here. (laughs) But I think it will tie together. So verse 13. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king 
who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be the king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Huh? It's a challenging thing to figure out exactly what he's talking about, or even more than that, who he's talking about. Quite possibly talking about himself here, where he starts off by saying, better a poor and wise youth than an old foolish king. Certainly that's where he is in life, and perhaps he's considering himself to be foolish, who will be admonished no more. But let's just take it kind of at face value. It is a strange proverb, a strange story, but he's contrasting here two people, or perhaps three people. First, we see a poor, wise youth contrasted with an old, foolish king. And he says it's better to be the poor, wise youth than the old, foolish king. Why? Why does he say that's better? Well, because a poor, wise youth is going to know who his friends are. Right? If you have wisdom and no money, you're able to discern pretty quickly who your true friends are. Because they're the ones sticking around even though you don't have any money. They're the ones walking alongside you through life, helping to hold you up. Contrast that with an old foolish king who is not able to trust anybody because all he has is money. And money draws like flies to poop. So he's able, not able to trust anyone because those around him are there for the money or the fame. Hey, I got to hang out with the king today. Think of Haman, right? Haman was geeked out that he got invited to the, 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 the table of the queen. Didn't know it was going to be his death sentence. So the king, he's like, I've got people hanging around me that they're, they're either there for the money or the fame. And then nobody would dare to speak into his life, right? The old foolish king who will be admonished no more. Nobody's going to speak into the king's life because at the risk of losing their own. I'm not going to tell the king that he's wrong, even though he's acting foolishly. I'm not going to take that risk. So he, he says, it's better to be a dumb, well, no, not dumb, sorry, a poor, wise youth. Because there you recognize who your true relationship, where your true relationships are. There you recognize what's good. And the ultimate conclusion he comes to there at the end of the story is, even though he is a king, he too will be forgotten. Just like it all said, like it's said several times, like I mentioned when I, I brought asked Dawn about her great great grandfather. None of us know who he was. I mean, we might know his name, but we don't know what, their, what his life was like. We don't know anything in particular. We might know one story or two stories, but that doesn't encapsulate 70 or 80 years or however long our great-grandfather lived. Same is true of us to our great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. 
We're not going to be remembered. All right. Trying to pull all this together. Life under the sun. Life without God. What we have to look forward to? Oppression. But God has built us for relationship. Relationship with Him. Relationship with one another. There's a a word for that. Koinonia. Fellowship. That that he, He has created us that we would find our greatest worth and our, our, our greatest joy in, not in things, but in relationships. And that's the way he intended it. So God has built us for a relationship or fellowship with others and with him. And that's a three-folded cord. And that's where we find our strength. If we have those relationships, we're not easily broken. Amen? Amen. We won't dive into chapter 5 tonight. We'll save that for next week. So, All right, let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the words of uh, Matt Marr who penned the song, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. And it is in that relationship, Lord, that redemption happens. But more than that is is in our relationship with you is where we find hope and joy and our greatest treasures. And Lord, you even open the gift of grace farther when we begin to love our neighbor as ourself. When we begin to see the value of relationships on the horizontal, and the opportunity to invest in other people. I pray, Father, that we wouldn't be partial as we learned on Sunday with whom we love. We wouldn't show favoritism and that we wouldn't discriminate. Because, Lord, you love us. We're so grateful. I pray that you would go before us, Lord. We pray for the youth at camp and and those attending them, Lord, just that you would be with them and continue to meet them, Father, and uh, draw them unto you. Thank you for the work that you've already done and will continue to do. Pray they would all make it home safely on Friday. Pray, Father, that you go with us to our workplaces, to our families, to our neighborhoods. Lord, that we would shine brightly for you. You're worthy of our lives and all so much more. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name.